Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Thank you for joining episode number three of Breaking the Mold. This is Evan Roth, your host, and we are featuring Dennis Berman, who is the business editor of the Wall Street Journal. He runs all of business news for the journal, which I believe is pretty much everything but the Golden Globes coverage. I'm quite pleased to have another uh, member of J.M. Atherton High School here with me today to kick off our, our show Daniel Roth, also known as Evan Roth's uh, brother, and really, Dan, it's a pleasure to have you here. In, in many ways, I'm an honor of not only you know what you've achieved in, in your journalist career, but the fact that you and Dennis share both the Atherton High School Hall of Fame, which I've, I've always aspired to. Well, we'll see if you can uh, can get there one day. This was when my publicist called me and said that you were looking for someone to be on mm-hmm. the show. I immediately jumped at the opportunity, and uh, I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, it was nice. I, mean, I was a little surprised that um, you answered my, my seven-year-old publicist uh, call. When the phone rings, I pick it up. Okay, Dan. So, so here's what today. we're talking about. Yeah. We're going to talk about journalists who are at you know, you know very good jobs at great publications who've decided that they are a brand and that they can go out, leave their firm, and become successful independently. And the value that these journalists are actually getting for their business, their business is essentially them, by all these organizations is rather shocking. And I'm wondering if you think that it's just the exclusive world of people like Andrew Sullivan and Henry Blodgett and Kara Swisher from the Wall Street Journal, or whether you think this is really start of a, a much bigger trend. I do think it's the start of a much bigger trend. I am not sure about the success, though, whether this is for everyone or not. In a world where anyone can post anything anytime, how do these new media sites that are started by these all-stars, how do they get eyeballs? There is so much out there to read right now. There's so much out to follow. And how do they attract audiences? And then if they do attract audiences, how do they get paid for it? Where else are they going to make money? I mean, the rumor is that for Ezra Klein, they're going to value him at $10 million. But he needs, I guess the business of Ezra Klein would be $10 million. But in order for him just to even make something as simple as $8,000 a month through income, through you know various you know either paywalls or advertising, he needs a million viewers. That among us rational business investor types doesn't make any sense. I mean, there are three potential ways that they can make money that are not ad-based. Number one is if you look at Recode, which is Kara Swisher's new site, Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg, they are really supported by the conference business. They have an amazing set of conferences. The flagship one is the All Things D, which I guess is now called the Recode Conference. People pay a lot of money to go to that to interact in person and to have Kara and Walt use the power of their Rolodexes and of their writing power to be able to get top people to to talk at the conference. That's one. And you can imagine that all of these big name writers and bloggers expect to be able to use that power. Two is is a some kind of a, um, a subscription fee. There's a woman named Jessica Lesson who used to be at the Wall Street Journal who started her own site that covers the tech world. She's charging $400 per year in subscription. It's too early to know how well 
that site's going to do. It's called the information. And I think the third big way is that media organizations will look to some of these stars and find some way to pay them extra, but have them do something that is a little bit different than the mission of the media company. And Nate Silver is the best example of that. So Nate Silver was at the New York Times writing about politics, went to ESPN, is now talking about the kind of numbers around sports. ESPN setting him up on his own, and they'll make money off the halo that is Nate Silver. I get it, and I get that that looks good in a PowerPoint presentation, but I, I think you need to be a first mover here because I think that there is going to be too many financial investors. And look, even for All Things D or Recode, the investors are NBC, and it's the Windsor Media, Terry Semmel, the old CEO of Yahoo's investing. They aren't going to do this if they actually aren't being able to make any money. And then what? You know, you've got these guys who took pretty big upfront pay packages, and now in order for them to justify Yet, I don't know if they're willing to do the editorial compromising that it would take or if you you know your example of recode how many conferences can you really do and what can you realistically charge and at what point does you know Bill Gates decide he doesn't want to do the sixth recode conference of the year and you stop you start getting B level people to come to the conference and they just aren't I don't see the longevity of this it's there's a reason that journalism is not a place to go to be able to maximize economic value it's a place to go to maximize lots of other values but not economic Ones. I think that the I think the it's a great point. The important thing for investors getting into this is to not believe that this is a scale business, and this is these aren't tech companies. They they don't grow with just a few people and grow exponentially. They're slow and steady builds. And Henry Blodgett has been a big has been mm -hmm. someone who's talked about this frequently on his own blog and 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 at conferences and elsewhere to point out that you are betting on first of all the, the investors who get into that typically get into it because they want to be along for the ride. And so Jeff Bezos says, Owen in the Washington Post, it is a, what will, what will this bring me? And it used to be, this has always been the case in media. You've had people who have been very wealthy who want to be where the discussion happens or to be players in making the discussion happen. And yeah. so finding investors for these is sometimes not that difficult. But for people who are looking for just for pure growth, I think you're right. This, these are not the vehicles for it. No, but it is, you know, it seems like media is slow to learn the lessons of Wall Street. In Wall Street, you know, when I worked at Goldman, there was this desire not to make anyone within internally a star because they're increasing their own brand. That brand becomes valuable outside of Goldman. So, you know, what the biggest difference is here is that these media companies, they aren't Goldman. So they can't pay the kind of wages or, or give the kind of rewards that enable someone to be anonymous. We'll get the other side of things from Dennis, who has spent his entire career at the Wall Street Journal, and we'll find out what motivates him to stay and what he thinks is the long-term eggs that Wall Street Journal has. Dan Roth, thanks for coming on for a little bit of the preview. We'll talk again soon. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at icloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. Welcome back to Breaking the Mold. I'm Evan Roth, and we are into our interview segment here, and we are quite fortunate to be able to be joined today by Dennis Berman, who is the business editor of The Wall Street Journal. He is responsible for the staff and coverage of business for the entire journal around, around the globe. 
He's also a writer, and that's his background. His current column is called The Game. And during his long career at the Journal, he's uh, won a number of awards, including the 2003 Pulitzer for Explanatory Journalism. He's won the 2009 Loeb Award, uh, which is business journalism's highest honor. Not to mention the fact, and this is really his claim to fame, is he's a Kentucky colonel. You know, Evan, I just put that on there to to, uh, get people interested, but... As you know, anyone can become a Kentucky Colonel. Dennis, this pretty is, much. This is radio. We're not supposed to tell our <laughs> secrets. Being a Kentucky Colonel requires years of dedication to the Kentucky heritage roots. Drinking a lot of bourbon. That's that's. All right, let's let's start with Kentucky. Let's think back. You grew up in an area where there really weren't a lot of role models in terms of people locally who were doing the kind of global and business writing that you're currently doing. Like, how did you get your start? Did it start that early at a young age? You know, were you always a writer? Take us through your, mm. your path. Now you got me thinking, Evan. I guess that's the sign of a good show. I remember as a kid just waiting for that newspaper to kind of flop onto the uh, front doorstep. You could hear it. It was early in the morning and just racing to go out there and and largely look at the sports section because that's what I was most interested in. But there was, um, in me at least, a need to understand what was going on in the world and to learn about it as much as I could. Now, when we were growing up, Evan, the uh, internet was not, really didn't exist, and you had to either get the newspaper or go to the library, and I would just love to read. And my parents had a world book encyclopedia, and, I mean, can you believe this, that they'd have a book, a, like a leather-embossed book that showed up at your door once a year with an update of everything that happened that year? <laughs> And it was like this golden tome of knowledge that was brown leather and and gold embossing. And I would go through and I would just soak it up and read it. I would read the encyclopedia. I remember M and S were my favorite letters. Um, And uh, it was, uh, you know, where it comes from. I guess my parents or I guess my environment, but I think it was just who I was and what I was interested in. And but that, that's as, like a, a quest for knowledge, which cer- certainly I think any good journalist, but really anybody who's good in their career sort of mm-hmm. needs to have, right? An intellectual mm-hmm. curiosity, you know, you had it, you know, within the volumes of a world book. But how does that turn into a writing career? It's interesting. You're good at something and you get reinforcement behind it and you want to do it again and that's really what happened. I, I remember not studying very well or very much, but I could make it sound good. Mm-hmm. And I was not six foot eight tall, Evan. The thing I wanted to do basketball, I was uh, a nice player for my neighborhood, for my block. Mm-hmm. But uh, Tough competition I, I, on that block. <laughs> tough competition <laughs> on the block. But, but, but I had to find some other other ways of making it happen. And, and writing, I mean, it's sort of like an unsatisfying answer. It's like, oh, I was kind of always good at it. You and I both went to Penn and it's filled with uh, some incredibly driven and smart kids who knew what they wanted to become from the moment that they seemed to have left the womb. They took the Wharton classes, graduated from Wharton, got the job as you know investment banker on the street, and sort of they had it all mapped out. It, it feels like for you it was m- more circumstance. It didn't seem like it was intentional. You know, Penn is, is such an interesting environment. Weren't you a Wharton kid, Evan? Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. Uh, but I was also a college kid, and that, that, that okay. comes first on the resume. All right, all right. Well, I appreciate that about mm-hmm. you. But I'd say what I was interested in was, first of all, being a history professor 
And that was what I was pursuing at the end of college. And by that point, I came to understand how terrible and full of drudgery the mm-hmm. life of a professor would probably be. And so I decided I'd, uh, hey, maybe go to New York and see if I could find a job. But the experience at Penn was uh, certainly put things into relief. There was a divide between those who were the Wharton kids who were money-focused and those of those of us who were not, like me. And the irony is that I know a lot of them now, and in some ways I'm covering them, and uh, they have a lot of money. It's sort of played out in adult life the way it did when we were students. It is ironic. I think the other irony is that certainly the the claim could be made that that you hold more power in the role that you have right now than anybody who was like, I needed to make it big kind of for a name for myself. You ran M&A for the journal. You are responsible for mergers, private equity, bankruptcy. You're the global deal editor before you ran business for the journal. Isn't it ironic that that wasn't part of kind of your DNA? It just, or maybe not even ironic, maybe it's because of the fact that you weren't quite in that way that that made you successful. Well, I'll give you two thoughts about that. When I was a kid growing up, I oh, I'd love to cover sports for Sports Illustrated. Well, that sort of, I kind of got off that. Uh, I want to be a White House correspondent. Well, that wasn't, in the end, that interesting. I want to know how the world really works. And to me, the still the motivation when I talk to people I work with, that's the question I ask them. How does the world really work? Mm-hmm. And, and and that, I think, has brought me, and I'm glad it did, into the world of business. Because to me, economics, companies, people trying to make a buck, people trying to make a living, uh, on wealthy, the poor, whomever, how that process happens, to me, is the majority of how the world really works. It's not all of it. Obviously, politics is important, entertainment, leisure, sports, all important part of our lives. But if you had to put a pie chart around it, it's probably making a living for for people and countries and companies. And so Mm -hmm. that's how I think I got to this, covering business, Uh, being, taking some Wharton classes kind of at that age turned me off a little bit. Hmm. to uh, to business. But I did my senior thesis about the early history of radio, and it was really about the early history of the Radio Corporation of America, RCA. And I spent a lot of time in the archives of a couple of museums, and um, I just loved it. Mm-hmm. I really loved it. And that was sort of my transition to being interested in, in business. And I'd say maybe it started there, but I still believe this is this is how the world really works. What you do, Evan, and, mm-hmm. and what your fancy Wall Street friends do is where the action is. What can yeah. I tell you? It's interesting, but you left out of what makes you good that of having a deep financial knowledge. Do you really – you don't think you need a financial knowledge to be, to be a, a business editor or to be a business reporter? Oh, you do. You do, yeah. And um, it took me a while to, to learn it. When I started at the Journal, I – started covering the telecom business right when it was imploding after the dot-com crisis. And the first big story I was involved in was going to bankruptcy cases in, in the New York bankruptcy court. And from there, I started covering deals. And that was, under, uh, was a, an incredible education, both about Wall Street and the world of business overall. So mm-hmm. you had to under, understand how the stock market worked, how the debt market worked, how mergers and acquisitions were put together, corporate law, corporate governance, boards of directors. It took many, many years. It's still going on today to put it all together. So it's been an incredible education. And that's 
in the end, why I'm lucky to have the job I do, Evan, because I get paid to learn. And if you had to, had to say to yourself, what percentage of people on this earth are lucky enough to have that opportunity? Would you say 0.001, I don't know. There's 7 billion people. It's small enough that you absolutely should feel yourself incredibly fortunate. You're learning on the job, and yet you as a writer are given so much more credibility than somebody who is just kind of talking kind of, you know, among friends. There's power in the fact that people pick up a paper, see you in writing, and that there's some authority that comes with that. Does mm-hmm. that feel like a responsibility? Do you feel like you have to work harder, that you're not learning on the job to the part that your stories, you know, or the guidance that you're given to other journalists at this point in your career is mistake-free, error-free, and written as thoroughly and as, as you possibly can to provide <laughs> the education? Uh, you're, you're, you're making my case for me. I'd say it's all really true. And you think about values and what makes the Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal, it's been around for 125 years, 125th anniversary this year. So what is it? Things come and go. Lehman Brothers was here, mm-hmm. down the street from me right here. And now it's gone. Uh, Bear Stearns, gone. Kodak Company, gone for all intents and purposes. So what I've thought about that a lot and, and what it is here, and I think what it is at lots of good institutions like Goldman Sachs, where you work, it's an oral tradition that you can't write it down in a manual. Hmm. It's not like there's a book you can flip to that tells you how to be an ethical journalist. No, it's really just handed down from one generation to the next. We don't think of it that way working inside a company, but that's what it is. It's a culture. It's a credo. It's a sense of purpose. News Corp acquired the company in 2007, and a lot of questions about whether the journal would keep those things intact. I think those are reasonable questions. Mm-hmm. And I think there have been some some rocky moments, but the gratifying thing really is to see how the strength of the culture has really prevailed. It really does live up to, not perfectly, but by God, most of the time, live up to its standards and the traditions that have been passed down. And that's cool to be part of something like that. Mm-hmm. There's certainly a, a trend in your industry and one that I'm sure has been a challenge for you living through this of, you know, journalists leaving and starting their own gig. And what you've just sort of shared in terms of like an ethos, you know, a, a deep-rooted culture that only comes with time that, that you have at the journal, does that make you feel like there's always going to be a differentiator in the content, what you create, the quality that you bring, simply because you have a 125-year head start? I think it guarantees something, but I wouldn't say it guarantees it guarantees at all. Culture matters. Culture prevails, but not every time. And And we shouldn't be cocky about thinking, oh, well, we're the journal and it's 125 years old and... We do it better. There are incredible changes going on in this industry and so many different industries that that I'm a part of covering or directing coverage. And I think it's really stupid to think that just because you've got a great tradition that you Mm -hmm. are guaranteed anything. I mean, go tell the people at the Chicago Tribune or go tell the people at Lehman Brothers or go tell the people at Kodak. They all have the same thing. Or go tell the people at Microsoft. Different Mm -hmm. situation. But their own CEO admitted, I can't make this place work the way it should. I think there's a real strength in a strong and and storied culture, and there's potential for real arrogance and weakness. For example, go look at the oldest bank 
the oldest existing bank in the world. The uh, Monte de Pieski, I'm saying it wrong, but Monte de Pieski uh, Bank in uh, Siena. I'm not um, going to correct you on that one. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I said it wrong. I mangled it. But but this uh, you know bank in Italy okay. been around for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and and they're almost bust because of a lot of bad decisions they made over the last ten years. Can I bring up basketball and Danny Crum, the label basketball coach? You need to. You need to. This is something I always think about. It's a great lesson for me. So we would go to basketball camp in Louisville, and and occasionally the great you know wizard Danny Crum would show up, and he would give kind of these motivational talks, and and, and he was sort of a big attraction. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, um, however good you think you are, look. You're best in your neighborhood, best in your high school, best in the city, however good you think that you are, there's someone out there who's better than you. So I don't think of the journal we should think of ourselves as being guaranteed anything because that's really a bad place to be in. So you, you've had kind of takeaways from different people who have sort of influenced you in your career, right? Uh, I, I would imagine there's many in that list that somehow revolve around Louisville basketball. <laughs> but you also think about, like, who you get to talk to because of your position. People return your call, and CEOs of, you know, Fortune 100 companies are, are going to talk to you. Have you right. learned as much from kind of corporate America as you have from athletics or other, you know, other people who you admire? Outside from my parents who been great influences. I'd say probably 80% basketball, 20% the rest. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) And if if, if you're saying that, think about the person who doesn't, who actually just sits in their cubicle, right? And (laughs) and, it doesn't have access to any of the people you do. It's got to be 99% athletics and 1% outside. No, but I mean, is it because corporate corporate America just doesn't have the values or doesn't have the markers of what it takes to be successful and is worthy to follow? No, obviously not. I've learned Ton, I've learned a ton. Uh, I'll just share with you a couple things I've learned from playing basketball, okay? Yeah, yeah. And then I'll share with you the other stuff from talking to people for a number of years. Okay. And this is playing point guard, playing basketball, Evan, okay? So mm-hmm. it's a different role. Mm-hmm. Captain but, for those those non-basketball <laughs> players out there. But you have to keep everyone involved, right? So basketball teaches you the point guard. you gotta, you got to feed everyone on your team. you got to get them the ball. Otherwise, they're going to start sulking. They're going to be upset. You don't necessarily have to keep everyone happy uh, all the time, but uh, you need to keep everyone involved. Uh-huh. And that's a good lesson I learned from being a, a point guard. Second thing I learned was really incredibly well crystallized by Jay Billis. Uh, he wrote a pretty cool book called Toughness that I don't know if it was well read or not, but I enjoyed it. He talked about this concept they have at Duke, and I hate to quote Duke, but I will because <laughs> I think it's a good thing, called Next Play, Next Play. And by that, that means if you've done something great, you have to... Put aside your elation and go back and play defense or, mm-hmm. or do what's required on the court. If something terrible has happened, you made a mistake, it's got a turnover, you need to put that behind you and concentrate on what's happening next, next play, next play. And that really means it's sort of an, keeping an emotional keel about things that happen in, in your business life, your professional life. So if something goes wrong, I say to myself, next play, mm-hmm. next play. And... Um, it's about not getting too proud of yourself when something goes well or too down on yourself when something goes poorly. So those are two important That's things good. I learned from, from basketball. As for the talking to CEOs, it's pretty fascinating having to see those who have it and those who don't. 
Like, they're not CEOs for no reason. Most of them have something. It's really interesting to see like what? whether, well, they're like the natural charisma charm guys. Yeah. And they just have it. You have it, right? You, you just, it's just a relatability, uh, an emotional connection, a, uh, they're fun to talk to, they're good salesmen, they just have it. I've learned a lot from them, just watching them and seeing what's effective. That there are all kinds of different types of people there. Yeah, because it's interesting. A lot of the, the the research that's actually come out on kind of mapping CEO charisma with company performance, it's actually showing that charisma isn't a fundamental factor in corporate success. That a lot more is about the having that charm is great for an external world, but actually trying to motivate your people, being able to identify the next strategy, identify risks, take some more cerebral, like meekness has become a trendy thing among CEOs. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't uh, believe that. I don't believe that. Huh? I, I don't believe that meekness has become a trend. I'd say charisma is really essential for, for one key thing. That's for becoming CEO. <laughs> Sometimes when you have a company founder, mm-hmm. they're usually a little bit quirkier. They've done things by their own way, and there's more, I think, room for them to be a bit odder, as it were. You decide to start a business. Yeah. Who's your first hire? Who's my first hire? Mm-hmm. Like individual or type of person? In- individual. Name a person who's your first hire. Oh, my hire. goodness. That depends what type of business. If you weren't a journalist, what business would you be in? Believe it or not, probably on Wall Street. Really? I gave me a hundred answers. That would not have been the one that I would have picked for you. As a banker? Sure. Why not? All right. So who's the CEO of your bank? Running the bank, I still have I had to go with Jamie Dimon. Hmm. All right. Why? He's gotten himself in a lot of trouble and, and reasonably so. But you talk to people who work at JP Morgan. They love him. He's he's a he's a motivator. I mean, there's tens and tens of thousands of people who work there. It's really hard for someone to be a true leader and motivator for that many people. But from my understanding inside the company, he is it. And he's also the best operator, not just a motivator. Look at the share performance of J.P. Morgan for the last ten years. Okay, mm-hmm. APM stock is up. Uh, this doesn't include dividends, and these numbers might not be totally right. But from what I recollect, it's up about sixty-seven percent. This is through the greatest financial crisis of all of the last 70 years. Of course, the government <laughs> has deeply aided the banking sector. But accepting for that, JPM stock is up about 67%. I think Goldman stock is, it might be a little bit better. But City stock, down 90%. B of A stock, down, I don't know, 60 70%. Mm-hmm. He made it work. He put it all together. I mean, you think about everything that JPM is. It's kind of an unnaturally large institution. I think it's interesting you're giving him success for that. Well, now we're talking about what real role does a CEO have yeah, inside exactly. a company. Probably. And if charisma is the, is, the, is the most important quality, then all it is is being the best PR agent. No, I wouldn't say it's the most important quality. I'd, I'd say it is an important quality. I think probably the most important quality is what you'd expect, strategic uh, understanding and vision and executive skill at making it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the old saying that genius is in the doing. And it's very easy for the media, for people on the outside to assign responsibility, better for worse, genius to one person inside a company of 60,000 people. Of course, that's not true. Mm-hmm. But I'd say businesses 
naturally succeed by the quality of their people overall, but the best businesses have a singular leader who can put all this stuff together. And it's a lot about creating culture. Like I'm talking about culture at the Wall Street Journal. How do you create an environment where the people can do what they need to do? So it's not one person trying to make all the decisions, but hundreds of thousands of people making the right decision. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll just bring up one other character type that you tend to meet, and that is the automaton CEO. So this is kind of the... um, the other side of the charisma person who's comfortable in his or her own shoes, just they are who they are. Jamie Dimon is who is who he is, like it or not. And then there's another type of person who has been scripted and is robotic and stays on message. And it doesn't feel genuine. It doesn't feel sincere. And it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And now again, that's me even the media interfacing with CEOs for my own purposes. Right. They might have other traits that are great. But um, you do meet a lot of automaton CEOs. Thinking about kind of what the face that, you know, CEOs and, you know, business people put on to you in the media. I have a friend who left journalism recently to go be, you know, the pursuit of, you know, bigger money. He would decided to be an analyst at a hedge fund. I don't think he has any regrets. But one of the things he told me was the hardest about making this transition is that people don't call him back. Like, he always thought that the contacts that he was making as a journalist, they were loyal to him, not to the journal, not to the Times, not to the places that he worked. What do you think about that? Do you think you've got these relationships with these people in ways that's independent of where you work? Mm, probably some. I mean, there's probably a, a select group of people for whom that's the case. Mm-hmm. But I'm under no illusions about things beyond that. Sort of leave the chair and you, I'd say, lose... Maybe not all of the juice, but, but a lot of it. That's just, I think, the nature of the beast. What's interesting is that a number of journalists have kind of forged their own name and identity. And I hate to use the word brand because yeah. I think it's a pox of people thinking about wanting to brand themselves. But, yeah, they probably won't call back. Making a career switch, which I won't, I won't ask you about. But I think it's hard as a journalist to do that because I do think there's something intoxicating about seeing your words in the press. The question for you is, do you write to make a living or do you write because you just need to express yourself? Like I, I thought it was interesting. I read, uh, I mean, when I was just Googling your name, Dennis, I came yeah, across sir. a piece that you wrote in Quell.com that was, oh, I mean, beautiful about like, you know, a message to, you know, your at the time unborn son. And uh-huh. it, I can tell you there, there weren't a whole lot of dollar and cents in this article, right? It was no. not, it was not, not about, you know, a multi-billion dollar M&A. It, it was amazing. Yeah. So do you, you can't really ever in the same way, you can't ever really stop being a writer, can you? That was an interesting example. That was, that was for a book. That was actually, it's actually in a book called Unscrolled, which is a bunch of writers are asked to write about the Torah, Jewish Bible. So that's really tied into to that what you read there. So okay. I encourage people to go buy the book. Uh, I'm not, I don't get any money from it. It's, it's for this group I'm a part of, but we'll post a link on the site. Please post a link. Mm-hmm. I'd say it's, you have a really good question there. I'd say that there are kind of three different thoughts that came to me while you asked the question. Um, one is it's like bankers. So you work at Goldman Sachs, you're really important. You throw down the Goldman Sachs business card and then you leave And for the banker, the question always was, is it me or my business card? Or for anyone in business, is it me or my business card? 
And um, a lot of those guys struggle when they lose their card. Who am I? What What's my place? Was it Was it me they liked, or is it just my access to Goldman? So, lots of people I think go through those those kind of situations. Two, I think if you're honest with yourself, for a lot of people in journalism, and I'd say sometimes I'm part of this dynamic, it is a shortcut to adulation, to ego enhancement. And people like the feedback, right? So is it really, is it the expression that people want or is it the renown or the retweet or the attention People like it. There's a saying about journalists that they're insecure egotists, and um, I think there's there's something to that. What, what's really fascinating is, is that they're now you used to have to work for years and years or decades or decades to ascend to the top of the pyramid and get the adulation that you might want internally. Now there are these incredible tools. You can yeah. have it instantaneously. And there, I think, is a real threat to journalism today is that Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn, they're, they're really these cheap and easy ways to get the ego enhancement you want. It's an ego enhancement device. I mean, that's all Twitter can be for a lot of people. So I think there's a danger there when you are seeking that and don't think about just doing really good work. Mm-hmm. Doing really great work is the most important thing. And serving people, not... Fancy media people on Twitter, it's just is annoying. But real people in real life, maybe some of the stuff we do informs them or affects them or helps them. That, to me, is really where I drive more of my satisfaction. And that's changed over over the years, but um, that's the cool part. Yeah. That's the really cool part. Well, we will follow your career closely, all of us here at Breaking the Mold. Dennis Berman, business editor of The Wall Street Journal, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks, Evan. Breaking the Mold wants your feedback. Please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. That was a fascinating interview with Dennis Berman, again, the business editor of The Wall Street Journal here on uh, Breaking the Mold. If you want to learn more about Dennis, we will have a number of links on the site, rothbrothers.podbeam.com. You can also follow us at BTM Show on Twitter. Dennis, what you think is one of the defining characteristics of a successful CEO is charisma. And then listing Jamie Dimon as, as somebody who embodies that and would be somebody who you would be the, the first guy you'd pick to be on your team. I think that's just interesting that, that I think reporters have a great way, good reporters, good journalists like Dennis, have a great way of being able to kind of get through the fiction of people that they sense when somebody's lying, they sense whether somebody's being disingenuous. And for Jamie, as often as he's had to go to D.C. and testify in front of a bunch of senators about 
J.P. Morgan practices and doing it in uh, and Dennis's view a way that has made J.P. Morgan stand apart relative to the other banks that have continued to suffer uh, post the, the global financial crisis, I think is a, a really telling indicator. And I think certainly from my standpoint, I look at Jamie differently. I will read anything that Dennis writes or that the journal writes on Jamie from a slightly different perspective, knowing that uh, there's some respect that happens from journalists within J.P. Morgan. I think he is respected, but from mostly external world, I feel like he's been at least recently scapegoated as uh, a prime example of, of the problems uh, that's in the financial sector. Uh, the other thing that I loved about Dennis is that, that what he thought about was special about the journal is its its oral tradition, right? You don't really talk too much about newspapers and their ability to kind of like pass down oral tradition. They've, they've got enough writing to, to fill enough volumes to fill the world book that Dennis referred to many times over. And yet that for any organization that's been able to survive over a century, seen the Civil War, has seen two world wars, uh, has seen everything the journal has seen. Um, I actually remember going through my grandfather's attic uh, and seeing all the journals that he had kept over the years and just thinking about how remarkably similar the layout, the style of writing, the coverage, everything has been over the the, the generations. Uh, and so you can see that, like, look, if Dennis from the inside says that the what's made it successful, you know, to, to be able to keep it, it as an iconic brand the way that it is right now has been through oral tradition, all of us should be taking that back to kind of our, our own experiences and making sure that we're doing a lot of storytelling uh, within our companies, being storytelling to our kids, just making sure that the values that we have are being used and and being shared in in ways other than just through through diaries and journals, but that we're actually doing it uh, out loud and, and and talking to each other. Which I think you know on the talking to each other, that was something also that Dennis really mentioned about the advice that he'd give to aspiring journalists, which is you know, do great work servicing real people. Don't don't feel like that the way that you're going to monitor your success is by the number of followers that you have, of strangers, of people who you really just don't have any ability to kind of make them better at what they do or who they are. Some of the quotes that uh, that Dennis shared, a number of, of coaches, Jay Billis, Danny Crum, and even if you're not a sports fan and you don't really get any sports analogies, even the best sports analogies are rooted somewhere in history. The quote that Dennis made of, of uh, that Jay Billis said of next play, right? Don't linger too long on anyone, either success or failure. The, the first one that I know of that, that said that is was uh, Abraham Lincoln said it in a slightly different way, a more refined way than a, than a a former Duke basketball player would have, and not just because he went to Duke, but the that that Lincoln's line was, "This too will pass." And I actually remember my business partner in 2008 quoting me that line as it felt like that the sky was falling and we're, we're watching kind of markets completely melt down. And the Lincoln quote is much broader than that; it's actually inspiring. And it, it, it limits the amount of pure joy that you have, unfortunately, when things go well, if you know that it will pass. But I think it's more important to be able to know that even when times are tough, personally, professionally, you know, with markets, with whatever you're dealing with, that that, that it, it will pass. And having that golden mean, that having that, that moderation is, is something I think that, that so many businesses are successful as a result of that, of that they're just not too congratulatory, patting themselves on the back, that they realize that times will change and that the business needs to change along with it in order to, to be successful. So lots of great takeaways from Dennis Berman. Really appreciate him coming on. And we will have more for everyone on our next show uh, coming up in two weeks. Again, follow us at at BTM Show or on our website, rothbrothers.podbean.com. 
Tom. Uh, and you can, of course, follow us on iTunes. Thanks so much. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, it's business. You've been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at icloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at the Hangar Studios in New York City.